0: This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. So today on Everyday Injustice, we have uh, women actually from across the country whose loved ones were killed uh, by police in various police incidents. And uh, it'll be very interesting because we have uh, an array of different uh, um, modes and also different locations. Uh, So we're gonna start by introducing Marissa Barrera, uh, who used to work for the Vanguard a few years ago. And I met her um, right after her brother was killed by Woodland police. Uh, So welcome Marissa.
1: Hi David, thank you for having me on and um, yes. So I, don't, I didn't mention that to the ladies, but yes, I used to work for the Vanguard. I connected with David. And after Michael was killed, he was uh, he was probably the only journalist in the area that actually spoke to the family. So hello.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, unfortunately, probably one of the worst things I have to do sometimes is talk to families right after their loved one is killed. Nothing, nothing, more horrifying than, uh, uh, than listening to the account. Uh, so Marissa, you wanna um, uh, talk, uh, let people know kind of briefly uh, the story of your brother and what happened to him, and then um, talk a bit about what you've done as the result of uh, that tragedy.
1: Yes, yes, so my brother, Michael Barrera, he was murdered in 2017 by multiple officers of the Woodland Police Department. Um, Woodland is where we were born and raised. So um, yeah, Michael, when he was killed, um, it just, it shocked us, you know? We didn't expect this, none of the families expect this. Um, Things had been happening with Michael leading up. And just fast forward briefly, now that I've been in this, doing this four and a half, going on five years, um, I've really come to find like the truth about people that are killed by police. Part of them are some random encounters and part of them are people who are targeted and then killed. And um, Michael had been having some issues going on. He had been complaining about the cop who ultimately killed him. And um, he had been speaking out on things in the community So there is some things going on. He named Officer Wright as someone who assaulted him before and who was threatening him or Michael had reason to be in fear for his life. And these are things that my family was aware of. And so when it happened, Michael's killing was, he was, it's basically where the, sh- the killings by police, I'll say, you know, it happens a few different ways. They could be shootings or they could be where um, they're asphyxiated and they are suffocated to death. And that's, that's, that was Michael's, his murder by five officers. And when it happened right away, we had a narrative that was a lie and I've come to find that's how it normally is. Um, Michael did suffer his killing he, had, he suffered a lot. Um, it lasted moments. There were multiple officers. Um, he, didn't, he didn't attack these officers. He didn't have weapons charging these officers like they said. And he wasn't out there trying to harm nobody. Um, I've since seen the video that leads up to it. I've, seen, I've heard the full audio of Michael's death. Um, it took us about two and a half, three years to do that, to get to be able to. And, you know, it's horrible. It's horrible. My brother, he was letting them know before they even touched him that he was not a threat. He didn't have, you know, he was not a threat. And he wasn't, he wasn't trying to hurt them. He knew they were trying to hurt him. So um, two of those officers, Krause and um, Tom Davis, these are very highly, they have an extensive military background. They're highly trained and they know what they were doing when they cornered my brother and um and then they assaulted him and killed him it lasted moments he said multiple times i can't breathe he couldn't breathe um unfortunately i know a lot about killings at the hands of police so when people are killed this way they often you know cry they're they're crying for help their bodies are um what, what I believe is that, you know, these men, like, they, they do give up. They give up because they know if they're going to fight the police, the police will kill them. So I know that my brother at some point, you know, he let them get control of him, but it went too far. And, like, my brother was a strong man. My brother was strong. He was athletic. he He was, like, about his fitness and stuff. So I just know that, you know, my brother did surrender to where they were able to you know, they all got on top of him and we have this Hannah Gray. She, she actually sat on his back of his legs and his body. Then we had, um, officer, right. Who's probably like 300 pounds. He, uh, was sitting on Michael. He was sitting on him to where his butt was Michael was face down and he was facing the same way. So his like butt area was on top of my brother. Um, there's 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 questions to where um, he had one or two knees. We've been going through depositions and stuff. So uh, basically, my brother was murdered. They put out false narrative. They, David, you know, you've seen everything that happened after Michael was killed. You've seen me having to, you know, speak out, and um, uh, with that came a lot of attacks, a lot of, you know, Marissa hates cops and whatnot, but. Right now, with my my brother's case, I always knew because I knew what was leading up. I knew Michael's concerns. I talked to him the night before. Um, So when somebody is telling people that the police are fucking with... Sorry, David, I don't know if we could cuss on here, but when people um, are saying that the police are after them or that they've been harassed or they have reason to be fair, people need to listen because that's what happened to my brother, and then that's what happened to so many others. Um, I know Christine, her her son had, had things leading up as well. Um, we will have our civil uh, trial. It's supposed to be set for 2022 in February, uh, April. So in a few months, this has been dragging on. We've went through four sets of lawyers, the DA quickly Um, justified my brother's killing and said the officers, you know, did what they were supposed to do, basically. Um, The report is full of what happens when people are killed by police. The police get to kill them. They get to control the scene. They get to control the narrative. They get to control everything. Um, Their investigating agency is their sister agency who investigates them, and they, they investigate each other when there's a killing, so it's not fair. It's very unbiased and I mean, it's very biased and um, my family, we should have our civil court. It could be scooted back. I don't really know what to expect because it can go either way. I've seen a lot of families go through their trials and it really could just be either way. But um, I have over the last few years, I've, um, I've always spoke out from day one. I questioned the cops um, when they broke into my brother's house, which he wasn't killed there. Um, I had to face these criminal cops, like Officer Mo, who everybody, I mean, people in Woodland, they know who the bad cops are, if you know, and he's one of them. That's the first cop I had to deal with. Another cop, um, Daryl Moore, he is a killer cop in Woodland. He made sure to give me a threat just a couple of weeks later. Um, not dressed. So that's part of what happens when someone is killed by police and their family speaks up. We get targeted and harassed ourselves. And unfortunately, it's a lot of women. As you see here, it's all women right now on this, um, this Zoom. But um, now uh, I started Voices of Strength last year, actually, tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, August 20th marks a year where we've been officially um, a 501c3 organization I started it for the families because when people are killed by police there's not much help out there people can organizations can act like they you know support police brutality they're about it and stuff but there's really not much out there that actually helps and supports the impacted families um, I think that's where uh, a mark is it's being missed right there. People are fighting for police brutality, talking about it and showing up at, at stuff for police brutality, but people at the, at still are not listening to the infected families and our stories. So at Voice of Strength, we host a weekly episode. Where we highlight a victim and their families come on and share. So everyone here has, has uh, done an episode with me. So if anybody... wants to check out we are on I just recorded 36 last night so we are on um line www.voiceofstrength.info and the purpose of sharing the stories is to get the truth out there and honestly it's taught me a lot just talking to all these families individually and this all of this it's worse than I even thought in the beginning even a year ago like all of this and what we're uncovering. It's uh, very, very connected with other things that are going on in our country that are really bad. So Voice of Strength, we do the series, but we also do outreach with families. I do calls with families throughout the week. Um, I would say the month of July, I don't know, at least 10 10 new families and some, uh, including some new survivors because we get survivors I just recently had a survivor who she found us because she searched the cop who killed who almost killed her. She searched his name. She found our video. And that cop had killed a man two years after he almost killed her. So he killed uh, my friend's son after he almost killed that woman. And uh, this is something that I knew would happen with Voice of Strength. Like right now we don't have a ton of support we don't got a ton of viewers a lot of families that view it, it we do have some supporters but I, I always in my I always knew that with this people are gonna see it people will see it even if it comes later but I figured you know these cops that killed our loved ones they're troubled cops and they're bad cops they're not gonna stop harming people because they're still on the clock and I knew there would be more victims so that's part of that other than that, um, I've just found my space is just working with the families, helping them tell their stories and, um, speaking out. Um, yeah, I'm going to leave it there. And I do want to say that, um, Anne-Marie Grant, she, she's the VP for Voices of Strength and, um, she's, she does a lot of, um, like research with the on police killings, the stats, the statistics, and she she does also work with a lot of families, brings a lot of families together. So um, yeah, I'm gonna leave it there. Thank you, David.
0: All right, thanks. Um, so one, one point I wanna make uh, about Marissa's brother's case uh, before I uh, move on, um, you know, I looked into the case quite a bit and, Uh, What caught my attention uh, with with that case was um, kind of this narrative that I've seen over and over again, uh, where police officers don't seem to understand that just because you can talk doesn't mean you're getting sufficient oxygen uh, to your brain uh, in order to sustain life. And so, uh, you know, at one point, Michael was... uh, uh, you know, involved in this interaction with the police, and he says he can't breathe. He wasn't feeling well, and and the officers uh, said something to the effect of, "Well, you're talking a lot for a guy who can't breathe," or or, or something like that. And, and then, uh, of course, like a minute later, he's going into the arrest. So, uh, and, and you see this a lot, like uh, Eric Garner, you know, is being choked out, and he's saying he can't breathe, and they're mocking him because he. He's talking, and I think uh, something similar happened with uh, um, George Floyd, and and police are just not trained on this stuff uh, to understand that. Yeah, you can talk, you know. Yeah, if you're completely cut off and being choked, uh, you you can't breathe. But just because you can talk doesn't mean you're getting enough air uh, to survive. And, sure. and so that was like a big red flag to me when I read it.
1: Um, And I just add in one more thing, uh, just, just seeing these, you know, like I know you've seen a lot too, David, but like seeing these for these last four and a half years, it's just, it just feels so stripped. And now, and it's to the point, I'm like, these officers can't be that dumb. My, 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 my son, my little kids know that, you know, if you, if you are harming something, if you're hurting something, um, and so I, I, I personally can't, I can't be like, Hey, they need better training. How, how can they get better training now to suffocate a human being? So, um, I, and actually, you know, we've, like I said, we've been through depth, we're going through depositions, but also just speaking from other people's, these officers, they, um, they, I'll just say they incriminate themselves. So. I look forward to going to that civil civil trial, no matter what happens, because the truth gets to be out there.
0: All right, Um, so um, I wanna bring in uh, Lori here who I've spoken uh, to in the past and I'm uh, somewhat familiar with her partner's case uh, from a few years ago. So you wanna tell us uh, what happened there?
2: Yeah, thanks, Dave, for having me on. Um, And thanks for supporting Sajid Khan for our DA in Santa Clara County. I love it. Anyways, um, so Antonio was killed by San Jose State police officers on February 21st, 2014 at 10.55 in the morning. He had just left the Antioch Baptist Church from helping, um, doing his, he always volunteered there for the past four years. Nobody made him. He volunteered to help serve the senior citizens who would come and get their groceries from there. He had just left there and he was on his way to our house because my son was sick. Um, He never made it to my house. And I remember seeing on the news about a shooting, not knowing it was Antonio. And I was like, oh my God, what's wrong with these cops? You know, they're killing people so damn early in the morning. And then there's a preschool right there, right where it happened, right? Right across the street from directly from where they killed Antonio. And so I remember they were talking about it. They thought it was a student. And um, then I get a text that evening from his niece saying that her Tio Antonio got killed. By police because he got in a fight with them and I was like confused like what the heck you know like he would never do that so the narrative they said back then in 2014 was that Antonio was walking through camp somebody made a call there was a man with a knife walking through campus acting weird um, Antonio was not on campus when the cops approached him and it was two officers that they said they followed him off campus. And it was Mike Santos and Fritz Vanderhoek who is now an assistant DA in Yolo County. Um, So, um, you know, and Mike Santos is still promoted. He's still at San Jose State till this day. So they followed him off campus and they, he was, he was off the street, like off the campus in a city neighborhood, like neighborhood area in front of these apartments, he was eating lunch and the cops came at him with guns Antonio spoke Spanish only and he understood English very little so Antonio in those kind of situations because the cops always messed with him six months prior to them killing him Antonio was beat up by six officers there were sheriffs UPD San Jose PD there and they called him a wetback they beat him so bad, they told him, go back to Mexico. They said, if you wanna be here, you need to speak English. And he remembered the car number of the got, the cop that already had him on the floor in handcuffs when the other cops came and started beating him. And it was car number 1685. And he says, he remembers looking up at that cop, like, dude, you're not doing nothing. They're you know beating me up. And he looked, but he didn't, he knew it was wrong, but he didn't do nothing to stop. But they took Antonio to the hospital that time. And they put a tube in his lungs to stop him from choking on his blood, and then they let him go. But after that incident, Antonio would always tell me, Chaparra, you know, like, they're going to kill me. These cops don't want me here. And he was not the same after that. For six months prior, he kept on saying, the, like, he would, knew something was going to happen to him, like a bad feeling and so he would drop to his knees and start praying like in the weirdest spots we'd be at the grocery store and he felt something he would drop to his knees start praying I would say you know you look pretty crazy doing that shit but he says I don't care I just want to know that if anything happens to me that my soul goes with God right so the officer said that they got a call for that and so they followed him off and it was a guy who made the phone call It was not girls. Girls who saw him, they said they didn't feel not threatened by him. He was not doing nothing to anybody. So they said that he tried to stab one of the other... Fritz. They said that he tried to stab the officer, which we know now is Fritz Vanderhoek, which he's the officer that tased him. And he tried to say that the taser didn't work. But in his deposition, he says it did work. That's when his hand clenched up. Like he clenched his hand. He goes, yeah, it did work because he clenched. But they... Fritz Vanderhoek was also the one that said that he was catatonic, which is another lie. And so the officer, Mike Santos, shot him in the back twice, not because he wanted to, because he said in his deposition, he did not want to feel it was necessary at that time to shoot him. But he was ordered to by his superior to shoot him. That's why he shot. So we didn't get no video or anything in his case. His case was dismissed early on and on the in the summary judgment and a gag order was put on the case immediately. So the only reason we got the video released was five years later was after SB 1421 and AB 748 were signed into law in 2019. That's when I requested still to this day, I haven't received all the videos all the transmissions, nothing. They haven't given everybody, even reporters were trying to get information and they're denying like autopsy pictures. They're not even his clothes have they returned to me and it's almost going on eight years. So after the video was released, it was very hard. I went to see it at the um, San Jose State University corporate offices and I took support with me and I remember Seen Antonio talking, and I had told people, I know Antonio in these situations, he would do one of two things, say two. He would either say it's okay to the cops, it's okay, or yes, sir, because he thought they were people of, you know, of um, respect that you have authority. So you would do that because he didn't want to get deported. And in that video, Antonio, if you watch it, I haven't been able to watch it since that time, but he says, it's okay. It's okay, his body language says it all. He's looking down, he's not being aggressive, doing anything. In that video, you also see the officer that's in front of him pull out his nightstick and roll it under Antonio's feet before they shoot him. And that's when Antonio's going down and they shoot him in the back. Now, I had a friend from emergency room said that Antonio was already, go- the trajectory of the bullets, how they entered and stuff, he was already going down. He was not charging at anybody. So that's why I believe they put his case on the order, and also because he's undocumented and they felt that it was a waste of money for his case to go anywhere because he shouldn't have been here in the first place. And so since that time, due to the fact that they've hidden so much from me and still to this day, I'm fighting, trying to find out all the information I decided my son was suffering. He was four years old and he cried for his dad all the time and it was frustrating. So I made an organization called Justice for Josiah, which was for the kids left fatherless, which was for the kids like my son left fatherless. So every year for the past five years, this year will be the fifth year, I have a Christmas from Heaven event that I have kids who are left fatherless in California come down. We have sponsors. We have dinner we have Santa Claus we have performers come down and each kid gets sponsored two gifts and we also have bike sponsors who will give the kids a new bike with a helmet every year this is something I do for the kids for unity for that time of the year when it's the hardest for the families and most of these moms it's hard you know you're grieving and and to try to make things fun for your kids so these are a place where all these kids can be together and know they've suffered I've also, since then, used that pain. I've reached out to many families um, all over because when it happened to me, I was alone. I didn't know where to go, where to turn to, and even where to begin. So in Santa Clara County, we have 13 families that we work worked together, and we came up with our, our guide, the first 24, what to do the first 24 hours after an officer-involved shooting, you know, the do's and the don'ts, from our collective perspectives, what happened within the 24 hours for all of us. And that's our guide that we have out there so all the families can use to their advantage to help attain a better justice than any of us ever had. And so I've really worked hard on the SB 1421 and 748, which I'm glad went into law, but I've been working locally. Um, I've had mental health first aid training for our youth. I've had 10 um, community members get trained. We're starting our healing, Helping Hearts to Heal mentor project for the children who've been left fatherless who need that mentor, that support person. It's in progress right now. We're working on it. We should, you know, like we have our intake forms. We're gonna start sending them out with our registration. I've also been working locally. We got our mental health crisis response team that we got um, approved through the county for $29 million for four year project and we're getting three response team locations in Gilroy, San Jose and border Santa Clara and stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of work I've been doing on the, in the back, you know, behind closed doors that I feel is gonna help the children, especially my son because I know there's a lot of kids in my County right now, even recently this year, there's five more children who were left fatherless because of the San Jose PD. And um, I was, thank God, I was for the first time nominated to be part of the Reimagining Public Safety um, Committee. No family has ever been allowed to be on any of these committees in Santa Clara County. And um, it, the reason it was happening, because it was a community process. So each organization nominated somebody they wanted to represent them. So I was one of the people that Silicon Valley Debug nominated. And so I'm able to be on that committee and my, and actually my vote is going to be, uh, vote, my, I have a voting right. Like there's other organizations that won't be able to, you know, make the vote. My vote is going to be counted as an impacted family. So it's, um, it's been a hard journey, but, you know, it's, my, my, my focus has been, yeah, the police murders are awful, but we're not talking about the children. And there's a lot of children that are left fatherless that, you know, you go, we don't get, the kids don't get support. And then they're going to school with SROs, right? And these SROs are traumatizing these kids because if they act out, then they're gonna send them to police. They could go to the school to prison pipeline. So I've also been working to get, you know, SROs off campuses. But my, my main goal has always been about the children to make sure that there is no reason why any, child should go on with suffering not be helped given the support they need because it's too political of a issue because of who killed their parents and i've been told that more than once it's too political they can't get involved they don't want to get involved but um rob banta who is now our attorney general he met me before and we he knows about antonio so now that he's saying he's going to reopen case i'm going to be meeting with him soon about antonio's case so hopefully we could get his case reopened because Believe it or not, when the we we, and we were going through our documents, all our families have going been going through our DA reports. Um, we found, we caught the DA doing cutting and pasting jobs. And when Sajid, we start doing more public, we're going to bring to light what we found as families, what DA Rosen was doing, and how every single case that he ever did for families um, has to be reopened and reinvestigated because of the what we caught in two of our family's reports that was um, like, by coincidence, it was by God's will, I don't know what, but we found something that it's gonna blow his integrity. Anything he did is gonna blow him out of the water. Like Rosen's not gonna have any more credibility once we bring that to light. So, um, you know, I'm staying persistent and all the families, me and Marissa have been also working on La Raza database, which that was another Bullshit, we had to deal with people on that thing, but um, we stick strong. You know, we're here for the families. Like me and Marissa, Marissa gets the voices unheard and I make sure the kids are taken care of. So, you know, one end, she's doing one and I'm doing the other with the kids. So um, we love our families, you know, like all the families, they're powerful and it's unfortunate that we all had to meet because of these tragedies, but it's our voices that have to be at the forefront of anything that are decisions making in our states, counties, whatever, nationwide, you know, because unless you walked in our shoes, nobody will understand what we've been through.
0: Well, thank you. Um, so I wanna bring uh, Donna in. Uh, and Donna, I don't know your story. So uh, hopefully you can share some of it with us.
3: Hi, I'm Donna Jesse. I'm the mother of Jonathan Victor. Um, I live in Louisiana, right outside of New Orleans, in Kenner. Um, my son was an eyewear representative for nine years. He went to school, college, at the University of New Orleans for four years, and then he was an eyewear representative for nine years, so he traveled Um, throughout the United States, and he traveled to various other countries. Jonathan loved to backpack travel. He loved to go to Italy, Spain. Um, Due to his profession, he was able to do that. His line of work took him to many of those places. So it was not abnormal for Jonathan to be on the road traveling. Jonathan had left our home on Friday, May uh, 12th. It was raining pretty bad. And he was headed to Florida. He was on the interstate. And when he was in Alabama on the I-10, right before the Florida exit, he was in an accident. Right before the Pensacola exit, he landed in the marshland ditch on I-10 at uh, mile marker 59. And he hit a tree with his driver's side door pinned up against the bushes in the tree. The uh, witness found Jonathan unconscious with a uh, cigarette burning on his lap uh, when they woke him up. Jonathan did not want to exit the vehicle. The witness called 911. The the fire department arrived. Jonathan still did not want to get out of the vehicle. He was bleeding. The fire department EMS had said that they thought that he was ETOH, which is intoxicated. Um, And they said that they thought he possibly had a weapon. Jonathan was not intoxicated and he did not have a weapon. That ended up leading to them calling the sheriff's department. When the sheriff's department arrived, the the deputies ended up flanking his vehicle. They surrounded his vehicle. When the shooting deputy arrived, he got out grabbed his AR-556, got his position behind the fire truck, ordered Jonathan out of the vehicle. Jonathan came out of the passenger side of the vehicle into the ditch. He claims that Jonathan was in a tactical stance. Jonathan had his arm, his bleeding arm wrapped up, which, by the way, the witness had told Jonathan to wrap his bleeding arm after he had um, woken Jonathan. When Jonathan had woken up from his unconscious state, he had told Jonathan to wrap his arm. So when the police officer ordered Jonathan out, Jonathan's arm was wrapped in his rain jacket. And keep in mind, I had said that the weather was bad and it was raining, and Jonathan the deputy was ordering jonathan out of the vehicle kept telling him to um drop what was in his hand which was his waist bag and jonathan walked up got to the fire truck and then the deputy shot jonathan four times with the ar 556 foot thigh across the abdomen and his thumb um The deputy did give Jonathan CPR. There was no weapon. Jonathan was not intoxicated. Um, Forty minutes afterwards, the EMS gave Jonathan ketamine, which later they would say that Jonathan had ketamine in his system which would then be used against Jonathan, saying that Jonathan was intoxicated with the ketamine and he was not intoxicated with the ketamine because EMS gave it to him and the estate has been billed for the ketamine. So we have fought Baldwin County, Alabama for the records. Um, an independent media source has fought them for the records. Jonathan uh, was life copper coptered to, um, the university of Alabama hospital. Um, he died eight hours after he arrived there, May 13th, 2017, the day before mother's day. Um, needless to say, they were not transparent. They did not release the videos, they did not give me the autopsy. It took me two years before I was able to file the lawsuit. I went through numerous attorneys before I could get an attorney to sign with me. I ended up having the um, Northwestern University uh, in Chicago, a professor who took Jonathan's case and they filed the lawsuit for me against Baldwin County's uh, Sheriff's Department to be able to find out what happened and try to get some type of truth for my son. So um, bottom line is um, the judge recently in our civil suit had denied the sheriff and the deputy their qualified immunity and our civil lawsuit, which they have recently appealed. And, um, we have just answered the brief on that. And of course we're in the appealing court right now, but it's definitely been challenging. And I don't think I'd be able to get through it without these families. You know, these families give you strengths it's definitely something I wouldn't want anybody to go through. It's a club. You don't want anybody to have to belong but belong to. But the support and the strengths with Marissa, Anne-Marie, Laurie, all of us together, Kristen, you know, it's just been, you know, the bond between us is just incredible. And it's just, it's hard to explain you know, how close we all become and just the way that we educate and what we learn about these departments and every story is different, but every result in all of the corruption is the same. And it's all, you know, every one of us have a different story of how it happened to our loved one, but it's all the same corruption. It's all the same lies. It's all the same betrayal, you know? And it's just, I don't know. Um, My son's, my ex-husband was a New Orleans police officer for 12 years. And then he had um, retired or he resigned from there in um, 1985. And he went to work for CNS transportation as a railroad detective. You know, so he was still in law enforcement, but it was a little bit different. So it wasn't the same thing, but he was an NOPD police officer. So, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I thought that. When a police officer does something wrong, I thought that my whole life, I thought, oh, you know, when Jonathan was in the hospital and he was dying, I really thought, oh, this officer is going to be held accountable because you're just not supposed to kill somebody at an accident, right? But that's not the truth. That's not how it goes because there's qualified immunity and qualified immunity Section 1983 protects them when they wrongfully do somebody and some, somebody something when they do something wrong, whether it's neglectful or whether it was intentional. So they're protected no matter what the outcome was. All they have to do is claim qualified immunity for any government official. And I did not know that. My entire life, you know, and it's just not just me, but how many people don't know that, you know? And it's just amazing how many blinders, like layers of the onion that have been peeled off of my eyes just through my son's death. In a way, I'm kind of grateful to not be living that lie anymore, but I'm definitely deeply saddened that my son's not here anymore because I'd do anything to have him here. But I thank you for letting me to be able to tell his story and his truth. And hopefully maybe somebody else will be able to learn from this. And maybe one day we can maybe hold them accountable and we can bring an end to this corrupt gang and bring this stuff to an end. And these put where families can't go through this anymore. No one should have to go through this it's really very difficult. Thank you. Well, thank
0: you for sharing your story. Um, so we have, uh, just to let you guys know, um, 13 minutes left here. Uh, Anne-Marie, can you share your story?
4: Sure. My brother was um, Thomas Purdy. He was 38 years old and a father or two when he was a guest at the pepper mill in Reno, Nevada, the pepper mill casino, he had a mental health crisis on the floor. He literally asked security for help. They called Reno PD. They intentionally brought him over to an area, the security where they knew there weren't cameras. Um, they roughed him up. And then Reno PD came. My brother, it's, in the reports, my brother did not try to assault anybody. He didn't try to hurt anybody he was trying to um he kept saying there's someone trying to kill me don't you see them so he was just like backing away up the steps he was sitting on but uh reno PD chose to put him in a hog tie um this video of that um it's grainy but you can see that they kept him face down um with a knee on his back and neck area for the entire time that one of the officers filled out their paperwork they then brought him hog tied to the Washoe County jail um, where that was also on video. He There was a pool of sweat under him. He had been hogtied at that point for uh, around 30 minutes. Um, he told them on video, I can't breathe. I need an ambulance. I had major lung surgery, which was true. He had had a pre- previous collapsed lung. He was arrested um, at the pepper mill for trespassing at the hotel he was a guest at. Um, so instead of calling an ambulance at the jail, um, they decided to carry him into a cell, still hogtied, put him face down um, and he was asphyxiated to death. They closed the door to the cell and my brother is still laying there with his legs bent up and his hands behind his back, face down in the same position and didn't move. Um, they, they didn't provide, none, none of the deputies provided medical attention. The nurse, male nurse came in and just snapped his fingers in my brother's face. One of the, the female nurse suggested my brother was faking uh, after about 10 or 11 minutes. Remza, I think they called the, the sergeant, finally said, call 911 after like five minutes. And Remza showed up after about 10. They were immediately able to get my brother's heart going again um and man uh breathing with um the handheld thing for him but his heart was going they brought him to the hospital um and he lay there at the hospital alone brain dead for um two days before the hospital was able to find us because he we're from boston so was he and he was a guest um the, the the jail just literally dumped him at the hospital and said we don't want him Um, And when we got there, um, the police showed up, told us that he just suddenly stopped breathing. They never mentioned that he had been hogtied for 40 minutes. They said he was talking crazy. Apparently crazy talk is begging for your life, telling them you can't breathe, that you need an ambulance. My brother was actually the second man asphyxiated at that jail by deputies. Two months prior, they had asphyxiated Nico Smith in a similar manner. And then a year later after my brother, they asphyxiated another man. Justin Thompson, my father did um, <clears throat> file a lawsuit against them. He's going on 83 years old. He ended up um, settling he, with the casino, the city of Reno, in Washoe County. and And I feel guilty saying this, but when he settled, it broke my heart because, like Marissa, I want wanted all of their lives and the truth to be exposed, whether Uh, Whatever way it went, I wanted the truth and everybody to know what actually happened, Um, but my father did settle with them. And ever since then, I've just been trying to unite families. I go out to Reno um, because I'm from Boston, so it's a little hard to fight for justice from here. But I do my best by um, flying out there every summer and helping organize an event with um, impacted families from Washoe County, Nevada, um, I just also want to mention too that my brothers in the asphyxiation deaths never got a review by the Washoe County DA, Christopher Hicks. He says that if somebody dies in the jail as opposed to out on the street at the hands of officers, that that's apples to oranges. So um, that needs to change. But um, I also, with COVID, it actually allowed me to participate more in the, um, le- the com- com- um, legislature. I called every single day and made a public comment about what whatever bills were relevant to police accountability. But I also called every day sharing a story of a loved one that was killed in Nevada because um, marching, marching is good, but we have to make changes in the law. If we're going to stop these things, you know, Donna mentioned qualified immunity. Um, But we also have to get rid of this idea of when they kill someone, it's objective objectionable reasonableness is what they call it. Um, and that goes with that Supreme Court decision, Graham v. Connor, and that needs to be overturned. Um, <laughs> when the police release um, their story, it's always a self-serving narrative and the general public really needs to take a long, hard look at these stories they're releasing and find out what the truth actually is because if people stopped and asked themselves and really thought about this question, when police kill somebody, should they judge themselves? I would think the majority of people would say no, but do the majority of people realize that police investigate themselves? I don't know because before my brother was killed, I didn't have all this knowledge about it. Um, so I, I just, and, and, and I'm happy that this will be the second year in a row that Voices of Strength is um, coming out to Reno to support the families there. And I'm looking forward to that. And I'll, I'm going to end there because I know everybody else wants to talk. Thank you.
0: Thank you. And then uh, finally, uh, Christine, can you share your story?
4: Um, hello.
5: Yes. Um, my son was 19 years old, Jesse Rose. And he um, had... Um, he, he was a very shy kid, uh, very, very handsome. Um, he had um, left the house to go to the park. He left his computer on, borrowed a cup of cigarettes from his dad, walked up to the park, and we never saw him alive again. Um, he had been, our family actually had been being like stalked because... Uh, by police and um, a gang um, that lived in the neighborhood down the block. It seemed like the police and the the, um, gang, street gang, seemed to have a camaraderie. But anyways, um, so um, the next thing, you know, hours go by and um, we get a, um, knock at the door from the police that he had been shot. And, um, this is really, it's really a complicated, very complicated, but I'll try to make it short. Um, there's a lot, a lot to it, but, um, the police officer, Anthony Ellis, I guess he's a former police officer. Now he had, um, ran into the park without following any um protocol nothing and um shouted at my son who my son was sitting on the it was an empty park at the time and he was sitting on the slide of the jungle gym and he ran in the park shooting and he shot my son multiple times on the palm through the palm of the hand in the chest we have a woman that lives across the street from the park who saw it directly clearly uh, we have her as a witness and the man who was working at the pool came out and he saw that my son had no gun because that's, that's what the story is, that my son supposedly a shy kid that goes to the park, um, who was not the kind of kid that um, ran with gangs or anything like that. We were just average people and he was an average kid who was into music. He was very peaceful loving. He was uh, just a really good, very handsome kid and who was um into his music and he had the keyboards he was his father was about to get um a, a fairly decent um amount of money from a settlement because he had been hurt at work and he was going to give Jesse some money to upgrade his computer and his keyboards because he was working on some very innovative music that's where my son was at that's where, that's the kind of kid he was um and he was not the kind of supposedly um a white man. Now, mind you, my son was um, a native, a native. He's a native and he was dark complected and so, and he was never called a man because he was a kid and he was young looking. He wasn't like a grown 19. He was a young 19. He looked like a kid and he was a kid sitting on the slide of a jungle gym in a park, an empty park. There had been a few people playing basketball, but after a white man ran through the park shooting a gun off and left the area. According to the 911 call I heard, the white man left the area. The white man was dressed in black and left the area, shot the gun off and there was, and, and took off. That's, the 911 call said that. My son was never in his whole entire life called a white man. He was a very native, very young 19 year old kid And a kid, not a grown 19, he was very shy, he was a very good person, and that cop ran in there and assassinated him, and I believe the whole thing was constructed, conspired, constructed, carried out, and covered up. And this all happened on Boilermaker Day. It was two months after the horror that happened in Boston, and they set my son up and they murdered him. The mayor was behind the yellow tape in the park during the while they investigated themselves. The UPD, Utica Police Department, Central New York, United County investigated themselves. The state troopers were on there, um, the sheriffs were all there. But no, you guys go home. We're going to investigate ourselves. My son was shot through the palm of his hand and in the chest. That's not a suicide. And the witness that we have she did do a deposition. They've silenced the deposition. Our lawyer has not gone by the truth. He's gone by the police narrative. The whole thing was a setup in a murder. Um, My oldest son had been named as a witness in a police brutality case. And he had testified against the Utica Police Department officer that had brutalized his friend. He had actually brutalized him too. And Eight weeks later, my my middle son, Jesse, was gunned down by them. That's not a coincidence. They had been stalking us, me and my my daughter, her friends, and my daughter was like 11 at the time. They'd been surveilling us. We thought they were surveilling the gang house. No, it was us. And we were just average law-abiding people. Jesse was an excellent person, a very caring person. And they murdered them and they did a complete cover-up. It, it, just, it was just madness what's been done. We, had, we moved out of Utica, we moved four hours away. We lived almost on the border of Canada in Plattsburgh, New York, to get away from the constant police harassment. We had police from agencies all in that area driving by our house, almost up on the curb, laughing. We had, week later, we had the fire chief, the chief of police and the mayor in that park within feet of the jungle gym where my son was gunned down at, playing basketball and laughing. I have a photo of it. They, and, 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 and I also have a copies of threats that I got through a false Facebook page that you, there's these pictures of the aerial view of them carrying my son out through the woods. I don't know why they would carry my son out on a stretcher through the woods when the roadway was right there. I have the deposition of the officer that states how he um the he was like a minute around the corner. Then backup was less than a minute around the corner. And they had the ambulance waiting on the other side of the woods where the the, the white man that ran through the park shooting a gun off went. Then we found a year later, my daughter and I were like, this because a lot of the news was completely black. There's a blackout of all the real news that came out of how he was gunned down that police officer because they did a cover-up saying he committed suicide that's not a suicide he was never suicidal he was never he was just never like that he was just a quiet shy ordinary handsome young man that liked his music and and this uh the man that we suspected we had always suspected it was ryan the the boyfriend of the gang mother you know the mother turns out the mother was actually, she was in prison for for murder. We didn't know that. (laughs) That was what our neighbors were. And it was her boyfriend. We found, so there's one piece of media left. It was out of Syracuse that we found a year later. Because like I say, they took everything down off the internet of any kind of truth that really happened that day. And we found one out of Syracuse and we're looking at it. And then my daughter goes, oh my God, that's Ryan in the park with the police officers. I'm like, oh my God, I knew he was involved. I've got, this, I've got the freeze frame of it. We've got the boyfriend of the gang mom in the park with the police officers when they're doing they're investigating themselves, was in there. And he was the one that we suspected the whole time he had to have been the one that done it because, they, they, because they, he had been they had been stalking us, they had been threatening us. We had a number of hate crimes committed against us, our property threats, they had been threatening us, threatening our sons, and the police were were stalking us. It was really, really crazy and really awful. And this is very indicative of Utica, New York. It is a mafia city. It has been for decades. It's decadent beyond decadent, things that go on there that people wouldn't believe, but it's the truth. And they definitely, they, they definitely targeted us. They didn't like the fact that our oldest son, you know, first, I think with all the things they were doing, they're trying to get him not to testify, but he did because we do the right thing in my family. We stand up for what's right. And in so doing, they stalked, terrorized my family murdered our innocent son and we moved four hours away to get away from them and but you'll be gosh darn when it comes to the blue they don't care about truth they don't care about you can see by looking at us we're regular average folks what did they do that for and the police still they'll still follow me sometimes quite a bit actually at times it's like i'm like a i'm a grieving mom I'm never going to get over what they did to my son and my family. We own two houses next door to each other. We left it all. And then the people that we rented to deliberately destroyed them and made them into filth. I couldn't believe it, no matter how much we, because you know, we tried to do a favor and help them out. Here, you do well, maybe we could do a rent to own, do-to-do. Do, destroyed the properties. The city came in without even letting us know and took one of the houses within two years, because these people were very, very much in with the city, very much in with them, very friendly with them, very friendly with the police. And they deliberately did it. You know, I actually received, you know, we used to go down there and we do the yard work, we do this, we gave her, I received actual, from Coast Department there, a, a fine for weeds. We had just been down there mowing, there was no weeds. These are the kind of hateful things they did to us. Who does that to a family whose son was gunned down in a park and it was empty at the time that that police officer ran in there and and immediately shot my son down. And we still don't have his clothes back. And like what one lawyer, like it took a while to find a lawyer. Unfortunately, it wasn't the greatest one. He went along with that police narrative, but you know, maybe his life was in jeopardy because strangely enough, about a week after we filed the federal lawsuit, he was um, attacked by some woman with a knife in downtown Syracuse. He was in Syracuse. I thought that it would be a good place to get a lawyer. And some I you don't know where, you know, and she was from a different state and everything. It seemed. And the weird thing about this, she threatened she'd cut him. But, you know, the woman that was the, the, girl, the g- girlfriend of the, the man that was in the park that we know, we've got the photo of him in the park with the police. He was, he was a known criminal and drug addict. Christine, yeah,
0: yeah. I'm sorry. Um, Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, I didn't want to cut you off, but um, I I know this is really a heartfelt story. Um, Very very
5: complicated. There's a lot more to it than even that. And uh, oh, and I doubt it paperwork and all through the ER and the hospital paperwork, it says that he was shot multiple times, shows how he was shot in the chest and in the hand. You cannot commit suicide by doing that. He was gunned down. He was shot multiple times. Our witnesses state that and other people state that and people know that, but because it's a mafia city, people stay quiet. They're afraid. It's a hellhole. And you know Cuomo, the way he is, that's the way it is. I'll leave it at
0: that. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming on and and share these stories. It's really important for people to hear these stories because, you know, you see the media coverage, uh, you kind of hear, you know, things that happen, uh, and. But when you hear the personal impact, I think it makes a big difference uh, when, when you hear these personal stories. So I want to thank all of you for for not only coming out here, but uh, for for being advocates for other families uh, who have been able. Uh, you know, unfortunately, they've uh, they they've experienced great loss, and I think having your voices out there uh, means a lot to. To people because it means they're not alone, even though uh, they're going through unspeakable things. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system.